Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. Space, the final frontier. And, you know, it'd be quite nice if we had a couple of hotels up there, you know, just taking a bit of the scenery and the planets. Well, I'll tell you, over at the ISS, it looks like they're doing just that. This week, NASA chose Houston-based Axiom Space as the grand prize winner for their Step 2 appendix program. Now, what is this? Well, it's going to be all for this International Space Station node to forward port uh, for the first commercial space station and research platform. And that's maybe going to be utilized as an ISS replacement eventually when it becomes decommissioned. And we talked a little bit about that last week. So Axiom intends on launching a special module, which is for research and manufacturing, crew, as well as a large windowed Earth Observatory to represent the Axiom segment of the ISS. Now, their ambitious new commercial platform is going to have opportunities and it's going to have a lot of potential benefits for having a space hotel. And this is obviously going to be for the ultra-rich, but this is going to substantially increase the amount of usable habitable square feet on a very crowded ISS. They say, we appreciate the bold decision on the part of NASA to open up a commercial future in low Earth orbit. This selection is a recognition of the uniquely qualified nature of the Axiom team and our commercial plan to create and support a thriving, sustainable and American-led low Earth orbit ecosystem. Now, besides constructing and launching the Axiom segment, Axiom is also going to head up the crewed missions to the ISS and further down the road to dock with the ISS and the Axiom complex as a proposed schedule of two to three flights per year. Prior to the ISS's retirement, Axiom will then deliver a massive power platform, and this is going to provide the Axiom segment with sustainable juice and cooling. Now, once it comes time for the ISS to be decommissioned, the Axiom segment will just break off and it will continue on its own free-flying orbit. They added, as we build on the legacy and foundation established by the ISS program, we look forward to working with NASA and the ecosystem of current and future international partners on this seminal effort. But this is a really big, big jump. I mean, we're talking about the ISS, which was how are we going to repurpose it? How are we going to be able to sustain it into the future? And it's just really funny to see that space tourism is going to be basically the platform that saves the whole international 
International Space Station and talking about tourism, Bigelow, which we've mentioned before on Future Forecast and Space Gen. Well, the CEO, Robert Bigelow, said his company has decided not to bid on NASA's competition for access to the ISS docking port for a commercial module because the funding NASA offered for doing so was too low. And obviously that goes back to, well, the government's done some cuts to NASA's funding, you see, affects everything else around it. NASA announced back on January 27th that it selected Axiom, which we just talked about, for the port through to the Next Space Technologies for Explorations Partnership, or the Next Step. So when NASA issued the request for a proposal in June for the docking port, NASA said the project would be making $561 million available for both the docking port solicitation and a separate one to support the development of a free-flying commercial facility. Quote, that was just asking too much, and that was coming from Robert Bigelow. So, quote, we told NASA we had to bow out. And, you know, in the past, they've talked about the importance of establishing a lunar base, and the company has created models for such a base that can make use of its versions of the expandable habitat technology. He said it wouldn't rule out uh, not working with other companies on commercial lunar bases of some kind, and, quote, if Elon, or Jeff Bezos, wants to work to pursue a lunar base, I would love to join in the partnership in putting something together as a team to try and make something like that happen. So he's talking about the lunar base, and, and we know about the Gateway Project, which was kind of up in limbo with Congress, talking about the pushing 2024's lunar Artemis mission to 2028, and that's still up in the air. But having a base on the moon, especially an expandable module, you've got Elon's uh, starship and yes it's a big rocket and you know you can kind of have people living inside it and then building out a base on the planet Mars or whatever but having an expandable module and you can just kind of load it up that would be a really good kickstarter instead of having 3d printing uh, of buildings and stuff this this definitely is an open call to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin to use Bailu as a partner and make human settling on the moon or Mars really easy and you know we talk about settlement on Mars and the moon but what about other planets now we know about Titan and some of the moons around Saturn and Jupiter but what about Pluto well Pluto is often compared to Neptune's largest moon Triton, uh, but it's got a really hazy atmosphere and it's actually more akin to that of Saturn's largest moon, Titan, which sometimes is viewed as an analogue of an early Earth. Now over at the American Astrological Society, or the AAS, they had their 235th meeting, so they've had quite a few of them, and it was earlier this month in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Bonnie Baratti of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, who's a member of the New Horizons science team, presented a study comparing the atmospheres of Pluto, Triton, and Titan. By modeling these three worlds, each of which have atmospheric hazies, she was able to determine the composition of the hazies, all of which are composed of tiny particles. Now, Triton, which was first imaged by the Voyager 2 in 1989, and since then studied with the ground-based telescopes, was found to have an atmosphere composed of water ice. 
In contrast, both Pluto and Titan's atmospheres are composed of an organic material. Now, these organic materials are responsible for the reddish color of Pluto's atmosphere. Pluto's layered hazes were discovered by the New Horizons spacecraft when it flew by the dwarf planet in July 2015. Now, Bratti describes Pluto as a, quote, factory for creating organic molecules. Triton is icy, but Pluto is more like Titan. Titan has a surface that kind of has features like those on Earth, like you've got dunes, lakes, seas, all of that. It's very similar. These are all composed largely of hydrocarbons. Now, scientists suspect Titan's surface features are composed of organic molecules that fell from its heavy atmosphere and are now trying to determine whether the same process is occurring on Pluto and whether this haze maybe is covering lakes and we saw those on Titan, so maybe there's a similarity between the two. Baratti explained, The basic thing we're trying to do is make the connection between the haze and the surface. And you know, these findings, they also raise the possibility of similar phenomena occurring with the exoplanets and even with some of their moons. So it's very interesting. You, we haven't heard too much about Pluto, so this is big news for the small planet. So talking a little bit more about shipbuilding and Starship with SpaceX, well, just nine months after scrapping their temporary Starship facilities that were at the Los Angeles port, the company has unexpectedly reconsidered that decision, and they're starting to have talks about building the steel Starship factory on the west coast. And if we take our minds back to March 2018, nearly two years ago, the public first became aware of SpaceX's plans to build a Starship factory in the port of Los Angeles. And really, this was a time when Starship wasn't called Starship. It was called the BFR, the Big Falcon Rocket. And if you think, oh yeah, that's what that was called, oh, it was kind of different back then. We've also got to remember that it was not made out of steel. It wasn't made out of stainless steel. It was made out of carbon fiber composites. That's how way back we're talking. And that's one of the major reasons we've seen so much Starship development. Once they got rid of this carbon composites that would have cost 130,000 per ton, right, in comparison to steel, which is like two and a half thousand, there's a big difference. That's how we've been able to see so many variants of Starship and really it seems like it's kind of accelerated the development of the whole rocket. So for now, it's kind of unclear exactly what SpaceX foresees for Starship, uh, especially with this reproposed port of LA factory. Uh, the same primary constraints remain, and there's still no affordable way to build a ship full-scale, like the 9-meter in diameter Starship. And remember, they've also got the 18-diameter uh, Starship Gen 2 that they're going to be doing probably in the next couple of months. You've got to say, well, is this really going to be the best decision to go back to the port valet? But most likely the explanation for the resurrected interest in the port facilities is that SpaceX still wants to keep some major aspects of Starship manufacturing within reach of the California's vast aerospace talent pool. Because obviously a lot of the talent is all on the west coast uh, when it comes to this type of stuff. And probably the biggest reason to actually have it on the West Coast is because the headquarters is in California. So it's just situated about 20 or so miles from the Port Valley. At the same time, SpaceX probably has all the space 
for SpaceX that it could possibly want at its Hawthorne, California headquarters after the massive Triumph facility was recently vacated, meaning that any intentional expansion into the port of LA is probably motivated by the need to transport massive rocket parts from California to Texas and then obviously maybe even Florida. Daily Breeze also reports that SpaceX would manufacture its Starship spacecraft and Super Heavy, which is the big massive booster on the property, if it receives the approval, seemingly implying interest in the full-scale rocket production for its prospective port factory. Uh, regardless whether SpaceX wants to build a smaller Starship subcomponents, like, you know, the nose, the tanks, fins, the plumbing, you know, the crew compartments, or just the whole complete Starships uh, with the boosters. So the company is seemingly far more eager to get the port facilities in place and it's more, you know, this time around they want to make sure it's done. So specifically SpaceX told a city council member that it wanted to get the port of LA facility up and running in just 90 days after it expressed new interest in the whole concept. To do so, SpaceX will copy methods used to create both Tesla's General Assembly 4 factory in addition to its own massive Starship production space in Boca Chica, Texas, and that's relying on its sprung instant structures, also known as shed tents. And that's obviously going to be what they use to create these massive Starships in the Port of LA. But unfortunately, because of how abruptly SpaceX abandoned its Port of LA factory lease, the company is going to have to repeat the whole permitting and environmental review process all from scratch, making it very unlikely that it's going to happen anytime soon within the next month or two. Regardless, SpaceX certainly remains as agile as ever, so hopefully we're going to have to watch this space. Now, when it comes to launches for Starship, SpaceX hopes to launch, apparently, 15 million rocket flights a year with a business that could upend the whole commercial aviation. And the person that said that was Karen Schnell's work. Not sure if that's how you pronounce that. But the whole point of that is she said 15 million flights. Now, Elon over Twitter said the Starship design goal is for three flights per day on an average. So that's about 1,000 flights per year. 15 million is quite a lot more than a thousand, so maybe this is something that Elon's going to have another speech about Starship development, and we're going to have some massive redevelopment uh, that allows it to do that many flights per day. But think about that in the airline industry. You would totally, totally flatten any airline competition, because think about it. Would you want to fly to Australia, you know, it takes 15, maybe 16 hours on one flight, or would you rather 30 minute flight, 40 minute flight, fly on a starship and boom, there you are, you're in Australia. Maybe you don't go boom, that wouldn't be so good, but you land safely and you get off in literally half an hour. And this is really critical because when you look at different industries, it's always good to see how many industries you can dip into with your product. And with Starship, we can launch Starlink. That's going to take over the telecom industry. That's a massive amount of income. And now you've got the airline industry, which is also massive. So combine all these together and you're going to have enough money to make humans interplanetary. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.